Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. <laughs> Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is the New Books in East Asian Studies podcast. Welcome to the podcast, and thanks very, very much for joining us today. I just finished talking with Matt Summer about his new book, Polyandry and Wife Selling in Qing Dynasty China, Survival Strategies and Judicial Interventions. This came out with the University of California Press in 2015, and this is a must-read book. If you are in the China field, if you are interested in legal history, If you are interested in gender history, in the history of marriage, in the history of sex and sex work, you must read this book. Um, And I rarely say that, but this is really a landmark book in the field. So what Matt does is he takes us through, and you'll hear about this in the moments to come, he takes us through over a thousand legal cases from a number of different kinds of archives, both central archives and also local archives. And you'll hear him in a little bit talking about why both of those are important, why they're important in conversation with each other and what they bring to the study. So what the book does is it uses these cases to look at polyandry, wife sale, and a bunch of intermediate practices that mobilized, in the words of the book, a woman's sexual and reproductive labor to help support her family. It focuses on rural poor in the countryside, and in focusing on the poor instead of the elite, um, what it does is it brings an important analytical perspective on class to the historiography of gender and sex in China, and it also argues um, that some binaries, important binaries that we take for granted, if not kind of explicitly um, espouse, right? The binary, for example, between sex work and marriage, the binary between marriage and trafficking of women. Some of those binaries, when you look at these kinds of sources and when you expand your notion of what constitutes Qing legal history and what falls under that umbrella, these binaries really dissolve. Um, so you'll hear a lot about that in the conversation to come. Um, I will let you get to it. I will just say that we really barely scratched the surface in this conversation. We talked about a lot, but so much of the vibrancy and the life of this book, um, so much of what makes it really, really genuinely enjoyable to read is the the group of stories that come out of these legal cases that Matt mobilizes here. On almost every page, it seems, you'll meet people, um, you'll learn about these really fascinating cases, you'll be brought into the countryside and into some really kind of amazing um, events and stories uh, that unfold in this documentary archive. So I hope you get a chance to get your hands on the book, to read through it, because there's some great stuff there that you won't hear here. But you will hear some great stuff here also. So stay tuned. Thank you so much for listening, for being here with us, for supporting the channel. And I hope you enjoy.
I'm here today to talk with Matthew Summer about his really awesome new book, and I really mean that, Polyandry and Wife Selling in Qing Dynasty China. Welcome to the podcast, Matt. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies. Thank you for making the time, and thank you for writing what is going to be now, I think, a must-read book for the China field. Um, So thank you for all of those things, and welcome, welcome, welcome. My pleasure, Carla. Thanks so much for creating the opportunity. I'm very grateful. So, Matt, let's start with the traditional starting question for the channel. How did you come to work on China? Why China as your field of inquiry and why this particular period of Chinese history? Well, I had a normal childhood, but then (laughs) (laughs) um, there's not really a very clear answer, except that when I was a senior in high school, and this was in the fall of 1978, uh, I had the opportunity to go to China with my parents. My parents were physicians, they're retired now, and a a medical group that they were involved in got the opportunity for a group tour of some medical facilities in the PRC. And as I'm sure you recall, fall of 78 was right before diplomatic relations were established between Washington and Beijing, and this was still pretty early for Americans to travel in China as tourists. Um, There was no really organized um, international tourism yet. Uh, You could only travel with a group visa. You had to have an invitation from some kind of a host unit in China, and there had to be some kind of sort of formal excuse to do the tourism, like traveling to medical facilities. So we went there in October 78. I was a senior in high school. And, uh, you know, at the risk of cliche, it was a truly life-changing experience. I had traveled elsewhere before, but never in Asia. I thought it was cosmopolitan, but I realized I was not. And um, looking back on it, I think it was one of these moments when you sort of walk over a threshold and you can never really go back. Your life is just different. Things are suddenly three-dimensional when they were two-dimensional. So, I mean, that's kind of vague, but then I went to college the next year. I went to Swarthmore. I started studying Chinese history with Lillian Lee. I started taking Chinese language classes, and it, it snowballed. Um, one thing led to another, and, you know, you spend enough time on something, it's, it dawns on you eventually that you really have to do something practical with this. And not that being a historian is very practical, but, but um, it, there was never a grand plan. It was just sort of one thing led to another. Mm-hmm. So the book that we're talking about today, we'll, we'll talk about all the de- well, several at least of the details in the hour to come. Um, but the book is about polyandry and wife selling, as uh, we mentioned in the title, in the Qing. Um, it's a study of legal cases of I think it's based on I think twelve hundred legal cases from central and local archives of the Qing Dynasty, and it's super fascinating. So, why this topic? What brought you to this particular focus um, for this book? And can you situate this within your recent? Um, trajectory a little bit for us. Sure. Um, so when I went to UCLA to do my doctoral work, I was um, my advisor was Philip Huang. And when I first arrived there in the fall of 89, I had a vague sense that I was going to work on big event history, um, which was my basic notion of what history should be at that time. Um, and so I was particularly interested in World War II and in the various kind of collaboration regimes, especially the Wang Jingwei regime, which seemed like a kind of understudied topic. And I think it still is well worth studying. But um, in a research seminar that Philip Huang had for us, um, he introduced various genres of primary sources that he felt were big opportunities or had been underutilized by scholars. And one of the things we looked at was um, Qing Dynasty legal cases. And I got immediately hooked on the kinds of stories they told, especially the stories about ordinary people. I mean, the vast majority of people found in these legal cases are very ordinary. They're peasants, petty urbanites, uh, marginalized people of various kinds. And most of them were illiterate 
And so it immediately dawned on me, this is a kind of unprecedented, unrivaled source for understanding various aspects of their lives that had been pretty much invisible up to that time, uh, ex- except for the work of anthropologists in the 20th century. Uh, but also the stories about um, gender, sex, marriage, family, and about um, sort of alternative household formations. These struck me as especially interesting because, at least at that time, it seemed that we knew so little about them. Uh, most of what we thought we knew about these things were based on elite sources written by and for the elite and making often very, I think, ignorant or biased generalizations. Um, and so I was really hooked on the material. I found it endlessly fascinating just to read the stories. Uh, and um, at the same time, it seemed to me a really interesting opportunity to do something new. So I started working on that. And I, and even though I was first drawn to the stories themselves, I realized working on my dissertation research that I, in order to make any sense of it, I had to sort of figure out what the legal regime was at the time, especially in the 18th century. Um, and so what I ended up doing for my dissertation and my first book was mainly the legal side, although there's... Um, there's a fair amount of the sort of social historical evidence as well. But I think of the first book I did, uh, which came out in the year 2000, uh, based on my dissertation, I think of that as mainly a legal history, about two thirds law and one third, maybe social history. Um, and there was a lot of material and a lot of interesting topics that I simply didn't have the time and the space to get to, to cover properly either in my dissertation or in that first book. So, in a way, it set an agenda for um, subsequent pro- uh, projects. So this book, Polyandrian Wife Selling, this is much more an attempt at a kind of social historical study uh, informed by a kind of social anthropology, I guess. Um, but in a way, this is part of the unfinished agenda of that original project. It, I had a huge amount of material I had found related to these practices. I was really fascinated by this stuff. Um, and I felt that it deserved a book-like study. And... Uh, so that's basically that's what happened. So when I finished my first book, I was already doing the work on the second, uh, and it took me a long time to finish. But that's basically how this came about. Um, does that make sense? It totally makes sense. And um, one of the things that I think will become clear in our conversation to come is that uh, the book is it's it's definitely a social history, and it's a partially a legal history. But one of the beautiful things that it does, I think, is reconfigure what counts under that umbrella um, of legal history. And one of the things that I think um, the book is doing really interestingly is arguing that our concept of Qing law, right, what constitutes as legal history, should be expanded to include the kinds of things that the book is covering. And I think it argues that really compellingly. So we'll see the details in the moments to come. Okay, let's talk about the source base just a little bit because you flagged that right at the beginning of the book and it seems important. As I mentioned just a little bit ago, the book is based on these 1,200 legal cases, and um, and this is important in a way that may not have been obvious when I first said this, they're from both central and local archives. Now, the book is the first study to incorporate really large samples from both central courts and local courts. Why is that important? What's For you, what's most important for us to understand about that aspect of the source base? That's a great question. It's kind of a big question. But um, yes, uh, as far as I know, this is the first um, the first study that uses a large sample of both central and local court records. I guess my first book did this to some extent, but this one does it um, in a more systematic way. Um, well, there are a couple of reasons why I think this is significant. For one thing, um, local court archives survive from very few parts of China. Uh, in the in the Qing Dynasty, there were roughly fifteen hundred. Um, Courts of first instance, the kind of um, 
quarter of the first census level kind of unit. That would include um, mostly the counties, the Xian, but also you have some um, sub-prefectures, Ting, and you have some departments, Zhou, so Zhou, Xian, Ting, all of them together, roughly 1,500. Um, of those, we know of maybe half a dozen um, local court archives that survive with any kind of numbers. There are not enough numbers that would be really worth doing a kind of serious study of. Um, of those, um, by far the largest is the Ba County Archive, Ba Xian Dang An, which is held at the Provincial Archive in Chengdu, the Sichuan Provincial Archive in Chengdu. That has over 100,000 case files. Um, most of them are, almost all of them are legal cases. There are quite a few administrative case files as well. And those date back to the um, middle of the Qianlong period, although the vast majority is from the late 19th century. Um, there are a couple of others that are of reasonable size. Um, as far as I know, the second largest is the uh, Nambu Xian Dang'an, the Nambu County Archive, which is held at the Nanchuan Municipal Archive, also in Sichuan. Um, and then there's a very small number from Baodi County, which is in Hebei on the North China Plain, and a very small number from uh, Danshui Xinju in northern Taiwan. And then there are a couple of others that have come to light more recently, but they're all um, very small, and they're all from the very late Qing. So what this means is that in terms of the local court archives and the kind of distinctive evidence that they contain, we have very few places represented, and Sichuan is represented far better than anywhere else in China. Um, so on the other hand, we have the, the central court cases. Um, the vast majority of those are what we call Xinke Tiban. These were routine memorials about criminal matters, major crimes, um, usually involving violence, sometimes involving um, things of a political or ideological nature, but usually involving very serious violent crime like homicide, um, uh, highway robbery, uh, rape, things like that. Um, and those came from all the provinces of China proper, um, and they were centralized in the archive in Beijing. They came up to Beijing, to the uh, to the court, because in theory, at least, only the emperor could approve death penalties. Only the emperor could take life, and therefore, these were almost all death penalty cases that were reported up to the center for review, up through the chain of command, from the counties to the prefecture, to the provincial level, and then from there by the governors up to Beijing. And so those come from all over China proper. And so even though uh, the nature of the documents is quite different from what you find in the county-level archives, um, you have a kind of comprehensive range geographically, um, which is unavailable in the local court archives. And so that's that's one reason why this is significant. Um, uh, the local court archives give you a kind of specific focus, a kind of concentrated sample from a particular place, uh, whereas the central court records give you this more comprehensive picture of uh, China as a whole. And so the 1,200 cases include uh, mostly central-level cases. Those represent all provinces in China proper. And then the local court cases are almost all from Sichuan, with some from Hebei and a few from Taiwan. So that's one reason why it's important. Um, and then um, another reason why it's important is that the nature of the sources is quite different. Um, the county-level cases have certain advantages um, that the central-level ones do not have. For example, because the county-level court cases, that was the court of first instance, what you see there is the raw material of a court case. You see the petitions that the uh, litigants filed against one another, the original petitions. You have the magistrate's rescript on these petitions. You see the kind of back and forth as it evolved over time in a particular case file. You have the warrants for summoning people, for arresting people. Uh, you have transcripts of courtroom testimony and this kind of thing. But also, perhaps most significantly for this project, there are lots of 
documents that were supported that were submitted as supporting evidence by litigants uh, and then were confiscated in the process of prosecution. So um, in this case, we have many contracts for wife sales and many sort of supporting documents related to wife sales. And you have the original. So I have over a hundred um, original wife sale contracts, which I was able to um, photocopy or scan and comparable number of ancillary documents. Um, and those are generally not available in any other source. Um, they, they survive only because they were confiscated by magistrates and they were placed on file and then the file survived in the central records, what you have is something that's highly processed. This is a report that has gone through several levels of the chain of command. Um, by the time it reaches Beijing, what you have is a kind of a formal memorial uh, that has been drafted with the most um, precise and rigid conformism to protocol, uh, because this is ostensibly for the eyes of the emperor himself. Uh, and um, what you have is the original magistrate's case report, which he wrote with Beijing in mind. And then that is sort of jacketed by the prefect's report, and that's jacketed by the provincial governor's report, which is jacketed by the governor's report, and then finally whatever happens in Beijing will be packaged around that. So it's sort of like peeling an onion when you read these things. The heart of it is the report from the county, but um, it's very different than reading the raw material of a kind of routine case. Most of the routine cases you find in county-level archives were never intended to be reviewed by their superiors, and so um, they were never packaged in the same way, and they were handled in a much more flexible manner than these um, major criminal cases that were sent up to the chain of command for review. So that gives you... Um, you have they have different advantages though because the central level cases even though they've been processed in this way because they involve such very serious crimes uh, most of them are homicides the ones i use for this uh, project anyway uh, because they were such serious crimes they had to be investigated exhaustively uh, every detail had to be wrapped up um, and so what you tend to have is a far more detailed far more exhaustive investigation and report about the whole context in which this main crime happened and so in these cases often i'm not as interested in this main crime, the homicide, than I am in the background situation, the relationships among the people um, and uh, their socioeconomic circumstances and the kind of logic of what they've been doing. Um, and that stuff all comes out in great detail. Um, often in the county level cases, precisely because they're so routine and they were settled in just one hearing often, um, you have far less of that kind of rich textured detail. And the testimony, such as it is, that's recorded often is very brief and matter-of-fact. Um, and so the central level cases have unique properties which are extremely valuable uh, for the kind of history I'm trying to do. Uh, in this case, which focuses less on the formal law than on the kind of logic of what people are doing, why they're doing what they're doing, why they're doing it, how they go about doing it, and how they feel about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so putting the two kinds of materials together, the two kinds of court cases together, you have a much more... How would you say maybe a three-dimensional view, both of these practices in particular locales and across the empire, and then also of how this judicial system functioned and the kinds of evidence that it produced. Now, the history that comes out of these um, records is not just um, really important historiographically, right? And there's uh, all kinds of ways, and some of these will come up um, in the conversation to come, in which the book contributes to really important historiographical fields in really important ways. So not only contributing to the study of gender in China by offering a perspective on men and masculinity, among other things, um, contributing to the social and economic history of China by focusing on the rural poor, uh, right, the peasantry, um, and in all kinds of other ways. There's also some great, great stories 
<laughs> these records. The book is full of them. They are wonderful. They are fascinating. They are fabulous to read. And really, they go all the way through the book. And it's one of my favorite, favorite things about the book. So chapter one opens um, with one of these, right? And this involves an 18th century peasant who couldn't support his family. He was also sick. He couldn't keep his food down, so he was chronically ill. And so he recruits another man to move in with him and his wife and to sleep with his wife to support them. Now, like many stories in um, the book, given the records you're using, it doesn't end well, right? <laughs> That's and right. So we could, <laughs> we could easily spend the rest of the hour just talking about these individual stories. They're fat. They're super fabulous. You, <laughs> Thank you. Um, just kind of um, as we get started, are there any that immediately stand out to you? Like after having read the book, uh, having written the book um, and mm -hmm. read the book ostensibly, um, are there any of these individual case records that just are still in your brain as, you know, this was just one of my favorite stories and I just can't get this out of my head? Like, is there anything like that that you just carry with you after this? Well, there's so many of them. <laughs> um there are a couple of uh, a couple of kinds of cases I might mention that I find particularly interesting. I mean, one thing um, you know, one thing that may not always come through in the way I translate these things is that the uh, the testimony in the central cases is often somewhat edited, somewhat um, standardized uh, in a kind of kind of standardized Guanhua kind of Mandarin, um, which is probably to some degree artificial. Um, but and so, when you've read a lot of this material, you can re you can recognize what you're reading has sort of been standardized a bit or processed a bit. But then, when you get to the fighting words, uh, the fighting words that precipitated a homicide or an, an assault, those suddenly spring to life in a kind of colorful, three dimensional way, and you suddenly realize you actually are reading what this person said. Now, the reason for that is that in judging homicide, magistrates had to have a very precise, very clear understanding of motivation and of exactly what happened right before the homicide to precipitate that act. Um, this was critical for figuring out how to sentence the crime. And so it was very important that that be highly empirically accurate. And so suddenly you will get the most foul, vile language. You will get the most offensive things people are saying to each other in the vernacular. And that's, that can be quite remarkable. So, for example, I have a case where a, it's a case of a polyandrous relationship where a man from a single peasant who is away from home, he has this long-term multi-year relationship with a married woman who apparently had a quite a feisty personality. Uh, and she was, she would flirt with other men and this upset him. And so one time he happens upon her and she is sitting with another man flirting with him. And so her partner gets angry and he says, you know, you can take care of yourself and your husband from now on. I'm leaving. I'm going back home. And so she says to him, um, in Chinese, <laughs> which means you're you're going you're going home huh well you're gonna you know what you're gonna do you're gonna go home and fuck your old mother right and, i remember you know, this <laughs> yeah and so i mean you suddenly i mean forgive me my language but no, that's no, the kind of the thing sources. when you read that you realize that this is not boilerplate <laughs> this is this is what this woman said and you know that gives you um i mean it seems to me the whole project could be done just about fighting words found in these cases. But that's the example of the kind of thing where suddenly you feel like you're, you're really listening to people from 250 years ago come to life and uh, getting a really vivid sense of their personalities, of their moxie. I mean, a lot of the women in these cases were, you know, as my Chinese friends would say, they're not easy to push around and, uh, and uh, quite tough in some ways. So cases like that and the fighting words, that's something that I found really 
striking to me. Um, there are many examples of that that I remember. Another case um, I might mention, you might think of a sort of an exception that proves the rule. Something I try to deal with uh, with regard to these practices is the degree to which they were stigmatized and the degree to which stigma mattered. Uh, to what extent were people deterred from doing these things by stigma? My sense is they were not deterred very much. Um, but stigma was a real factor and it could have various kinds of effects. Um, I have some evidence that in ordinary villages, for the most part, if people were engaged in a polyandrous relationship or something like it, they would be left alone. Um, nobody would bother them. Um, but there are some cases in which these people were members of a large, well-organized lineage, um, a common descent group. And in those situations, the senior men of that lineage might be very, very sensitive about family reputation. And in those situations, you find that... Um, lineage as an organization might come down very hard on people who were deviating from what was seen as proper behavior. Um, and so I have a case in which um, there is a there are two cousins, two men who are cousins, and one of them is married, the other is not, and they have a polyandrous relationship that has lasted for several years. And men, other men in the lineage are offended by this, but for several years nobody's done anything about it. Um, and then finally, um, when uh, the uh, tomb sweeping festival is coming up, some of the men um, are preparing for the festival and they talk about what they see as a kind of a scandalous phenomenon and they decide they should do something about it and discipline um, the the men in the lineage who are behaving this way. And so what they agree to do is to force the married man to sell his wife, to sell her out of the lineage and get rid of her, uh, and then and force the senior relatives of these men um, to sort of take responsibility for their behavior and chastise them. Um, when the festival day comes... Um, the men are all out there, including the two men who have, who have engaged in polyandry. Um, they are all out uh, in the presence of the tombs of their ancestors, and they are confronted in this manner. Um, but instead of cooperating, the, the uh, unmarried man, the partner in polyandry, he defies the other man and says, you know, this is not fair. If you're going to make my cousin um, sell his wife, then one of you should provide a wife or daughter to replace her. Uh, you can't do this. And they defy them. And this then provokes the more extremists among the lineage men who are really offended by this. And so what they do, they decide to um, put these two men to death. And so what they do is they bury them alive. Okay. And then the woman comes out, uh, having heard what's going on, she comes out with a knife and she's trying to defend her husband um, in this sort of heroic but vain attempt. And they do her in too. They murder her and they bury her as well. So you have three murders that take place. And um, so this is the kind of thing that then ends up in a, in a case record sometimes. It's a very extreme case. Uh, so one of the questions is, what do you make of this? I mean, on the one hand, you can say, well, this is vivid proof that um, this behavior was stigmatized and that um, people were offended by it, right? And that family, extended families would crack down and punish it. Um, that's no doubt true up to a point, but it seems to me that it's also revealing in other ways. Um, as far as I can tell, most people involved in these relationships were not members of, of powerful, well-organized common descent groups of this nature. Uh, even some other cases I have that do involve such descent groups, they were not always so cruel or so draconian in, in dealing with such things. But also, it's interesting that this trio had had this relationship going on for several years, and nobody had ever interfered with them before. It was only at this moment, after several years, that finally somebody decided to do something about it. 
Also, the fact is that the initial decision was to force the husband to sell his wife. In other words, get rid of the alien female who was causing trouble. Um, and so if the, the men had not defied them, uh, this whole thing would have ended with a wife sale, presumably, and with peace. Um, so it was really only the extraordinary circumstances of this festival day when they're under the eyes of their ancestors in this um, ritual circumstance and then they're defied, that this provokes the extremists among the, among the men of the lineage to take such extreme action. And then what's interesting also is that uh, there's not unity among the men of the lineage what to do because the dead husband's brother and father immediately go to the authorities and report this, mm-hmm. uh, even though they have been specifically instructed by the lineage elders not to do so to keep this inside the family, keep it a secret. But clearly they, you know, what, no matter what they thought of polyandry, they obviously did not feel that this application of family rules was appropriate or right or good. So this, um, precipitated a kind of mass arrest and, and, um, the execution of several of the men who were involved in these murders. Uh, and, and then also there's the fact that the, the, Polyandrous trio defied the lineage. They stood up for themselves. And from their testimony, it's quite clear they did not feel any shame about their behavior. On the contrary, they felt the other people just mind their own business and leave them alone. And so it's a complex case. It's quite makes for rather horrifying reading. On the other hand, you can read it from different angles, right? In some ways, it strikes me as an exception that proves the rule. I mean, for every Every um, instance that resulted in such a horrific scenario as that, there must have been many, many, many others that did not, that never left any trace in the criminal records. So, um, I mean, those are just a couple of examples of the kinds of things that stick in my mind. These are sort of off the top of my head. No, that's that's great. Um, So the the example that you were just talking about, I think, is on page 64 and 65 for listeners who are going to become readers. And it's (laughs) it's one of the um, cases that's featured in Chapter 2. Now, we get to Chapter 2 after a first chapter. I'm going to do a super brief, um, just kind of travel through here. Um, The first chapter really gives us a sense of the big picture. And some of the things that come up that listeners might not otherwise know is that these stories are happening in a context where there's a skewed sex ratio and a shortage of women, there's widespread poverty, and there's a market for the sexual and reproductive labor of women. And the first chapter really takes us into this. And it also takes us into um, some of the main ways of bringing an outside male into the family. Um, You talk here about contracts for getting a husband to support a husband, um, and also the idea of a sworn brotherhood as a way of bringing another male into the family. Okay, then we move from there to chapter two, which looks at these questions of stigma that you were just talking about, looks at um, the um, relationships between the people who are engaged in these um, situations and relationships and families and communities and local village authorities. It also really interestingly looks at um, the issue of the power, the empowerment of women in these cases. So these fighting words that you were talking about, this is actually um, what one of the what this chapter identifies to be one of the forms of empowerment um, of these women, the power to use insults, public display, gossip, to shame men. Um, The power also, um, you talk here, to uh, to view sex unsentimentally as a form of exchange and an asset to trade with. And this is a really important point that I think is worth very briefly touching on. Sexual relations in this context were a form of labor and earning power that were comparable to that of men. And you talk about sex as a form of labor, but also the importance here of getting rid of, in this context, um, our notion of a clear cut binary here between marriage and sex work. Um, so, did you want to talk about that at all? This sort of, sure. Yeah. 
Right. So there are a couple of, I guess, sort of larger points I'm trying to make in the book, and we'll see whether they stand up to scrutiny. But one is, as you just mentioned, um, trying to challenge this binary, this clear-cut binary distinction between marriage and sex work. This binary distinction was fundamental to elite ideology, to the chastity cult, to um, um, Qing orthodoxy, to the law. Um, the assumption being that um, marriage is about a chaste wife who is properly separated from men um, and faithful to her husband unto death. And prostitution is about the untrammeled promiscuity of a public woman. Um, and there the twain shall meet. That was the idea. Um, the other one of the other sort of large point of this nature that I want to do is break down the distinction between marriage and trafficking uh, in the Chinese marriage system. And we can talk about that later, maybe if it comes up. But so if we look at marriage and sex work, um, there are a couple of ways in which the binary collapses. Of course, it stands up when we look only at elite lifestyle um, up to a point. But if we look at this marriage system from the perspective of the poor, the poorest of people, um, it, we find, so for example, um, as far as I can tell, the vast majority of prostitutes uh, in the Qing dynasty were married. They were married women who were supporting their families or helping to support their families and, and prostitution took a number of forms but most of it that I found in Qing legal cases was marital prostitution where the husband is either himself um, acting as a kind of pimp or tout or he has contracted his wife to a brothel. And most of the other women that I find in who are prostitutes in Qing legal cases, these are um, widows. So they're widows who... Um, have not been left enough uh, support, and therefore this is the, the way they can find means of support. And so in the cases where you have married women engaging in prostitution, retail prostitution with multiple customers, um, prostitution actually supporting marriage. It's a way of um, earning extra income, perhaps the only income, and keeping a family together. Otherwise, they would have to separate permanently, perhaps, for a wife sale. Um, that's one of the ways. But also in this whole spectrum of what I call polyandrous behavior, um, the uh, Yangfu, bringing in a second husband to support the first husband, that's one form. But also there is what we might call a transactional polyamory, where a wife takes uh, more than one patron. Um, usually they're single, able-bodied men in the village who are um, having sex with her and then periodically chipping in to help support her family. Sometimes they all like hang out, right? There's like, they all hang out. They just all um, descend at the same time. They eat exactly. together. They exactly. they do their things. So they become like a little group. Yeah, so these things, I mean, aside from retail prostitution, um, the kind of polyamory and polyandry, these were about more than just sex per se. Um, these were about single men, um, often uprooted single men, um, getting access to a whole range of things in a family. Um, um, sex, of course, but uh, family relations, um, cooked meals, um, various kinds of female domestic caring work, um, making and mending of clothing, but also sometimes the opportunity to have children of their own. All of these things became available in this context of these single able-bodied men who would, be, who would be brought in in one way or another to a household that had fallen on hard times. So it wasn't only about sex per se. But if you, but if you look at this spectrum of practices, uh, in all of them, we find that um, the, woman, the woman's sexual and reproductive labor are being deployed in order to help support her family. And polyandry at, at root was a way to survive and keep the family together as a family by expanding it, you might say, bringing in an outside male or acquiring the help of two or three outside men. This is a way of raising the ratio between labor and mouths that had to be fed. And for a couple that were at the edge of subsistence, that extra increment might be enough to make the difference uh, between getting by and not getting by. And so... 
in that context, um, you really can't separate um, sex work from marriage. Sex work is part of the package of household labor, which is enabling this household to survive. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much. Now, um, one of the really interesting things that comes up in the discussion here, and we won't have time to talk about it in any detail, but I just want to mark it because it seems important. Um, in the discussion in Chapter 3, for example, uh, of this sort of intermediate range of practices, as you call them, including transactional polyamory, marital prostitution, um, you also talk about conditional wife sale. And readers, yes. mm-hmm. and listeners can go to Chapter 3 to read about this. I mention this because something that comes up there is the point um, about really close parallels between wife sales and land sales. Yes. So, a, so this seems really important, and this threads through the whole book, the ways in which um, buying and selling wives and buying and selling land are actually really interestingly, discursively, and legally related. Yes. Uh-huh. So that seems really important. Yeah, very much so. Okay. So this takes us through the first part of the book, right? Um, polyandry. There's now a second part of the book as well that we'll only be able to kind of scratch the surface of. But I want to just um, ask you a few things about it. So there's a chapter, chapter four, that takes us through the anatomy of a wife sale. Um, it opens with a case of someone who sold his wife in order to pay for a proper burial for his father. So you can kind of get a sense of just the, the weightiness of some of these cases and the real kind of, they really pull at your empathetic strings. Um, mm-hmm. Just to read about that, you know, I bury my my uh, parent or I keep my wife. I mean, it's just kind of crazy to think about um, the the magnitude of this. Um, but this chapter also takes us through, you know, well, who were the matchmakers? Um, what was their job? Um, how important was beauty relative to youth, etc.? One of the things that it brings us into is the details of these contracts. Now, you talk about these handprint contracts, okay? So they literally had a handprint on them, and there's a handprint um, right on the cover of the book. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. This raises um, a, an interesting question that, again, comes up throughout the book. And this is a question of legality. So these contracts were technically documenting an illegal practice. Yes. So they're technically <laughs> documenting a crime. So can you talk a little bit about that? Um, and, and the book does this really beautifully and at great length. But what's uh, what are these contracts for, for listeners um, who haven't yet read the book? How are they enforced? And what's going on here with a contract um, that's very carefully drawn up to document a crime? Right. So excellent question. Um, it's, it's really fundamental to the book. And it gets back to a point you made earlier, this question of, of um, expanding the range of what we think of as Qing law uh, to include um, unorthodox practices and community regulation of such practices outside the formal system and often in defiance of that system. So, yes, wife sales were prohibited under almost all circumstances. Um, what the contract was really for, it would serve a number of purposes. First of all, most basically, it was a kind of statement of informed consent. Um, the text of these contracts would be written by a scribe almost always, but in the voice of the husband selling his wife. And this follows very closely the pattern of a land sale contract. Um, so the husband would begin by identifying himself, identifying his wife, saying that they had fallen on hard times and uh, therefore... Um, uh, unfortunately, uh, he or they had come to the decision they had to sell her. And so he had engaged a matchmaker who had found a buyer. The buyer had agreed to pay X amount of money. Uh, that amount of money had now been paid over. 
in full before witnesses, um, and to and then the the seller promises never to um, harass the buyer again um, in the future, and he promises uh, never to demand more money, and then to show his goodwill and prove it, he is drawing up this contract, and in the end, he places his own handprint, sometimes a footprint as well, to prove that he's acting. Um, freely and without coercion. So that's the basic pattern of these contracts. They're written in the um, first person from the standpoint of the seller, the first husband, in other words, the seller. And then that contract would go with the woman into the possession of the buyer um, in exchange for the money. And that would serve as a sort of title deed to the woman, you might say. Now, again, it was illegal, so this demonstrated a crime. But the contracts would always have uh, names of witnesses and the matchmaker listed, and they would um, always um, sign sign the contract with their mark, usually an X or a cross or something like that, sometimes a fingerprint. Um, And the idea was that if there was a dispute, if there was trouble, then the buyer and seller should go to these witnesses these mediators and have them sort out whatever the problem was. Uh, and again, this is an example of turning the community for regulation of a transaction that you really couldn't take to court unless you wanted trouble. Um, and so that was the first line of defense, as it were. Um, if there was some kind of problem, some kind of dispute subsequent to the sale, then the uh, seller could go to those witnesses or the buyer could as well and um, ask them to mediate it. And so often these, um, Witnesses and the matchmakers would include uh, relatives of the two men, occasionally a relative of the woman. Um, it's not unusual to have all three families represented in the transaction in some capacity. Uh, often um, you would have some sort of um, you know, significant person in the local community. Um, not no one wealthy, no gentry, but you know somebody who um, was respected in the community, who had played this role for land transactions. Perhaps that person would be there. And again, the idea was that this would be sorted out at the community level um, through a mediated settlement of some kind. Um, that was the most basic purpose of these documents. And so, my assumption, because these were illegal transactions and nobody stood to gain from going to court. My assumption would be that almost all disputes that arose were sorted out at the community level. So we never have any record of them in the in the in the legal cases. Um, But there was a a second issue involved here. And this reflects the fact that um, many of the men who sold wives did so under desperate circumstances. The almost always the reason for this was poverty. And these sales had something of the nature of a fire sale in that the husband's selling wives usually had to accept the first price they were offered. They could not afford to wait around and try to get other offers and then and negotiate. They, they usually had to take the first offer they received. And so they often felt they had been cheated. They often felt that they had had to accept too little money for their wife, less than, than they deserved. And so um, this um, creative created a kind of incentive for these men once they had sold their wives to go try to demand more money. There's another aspect of this. This relates to the parallel with land. Uh, as in land sales, in land sales, um, especially conditional sale, but even in so-called absolute sales, it was very common for sellers to go back to the buyer and demand more money after a period of time, a so-called jia or um, a supplementary payment. Um, and the, the theory behind this was that, um, how should I put it? For A, to sell a piece of land to B did not alienate himself from the land so much as it created a relationship with B in which B had benefited from his misfortune and therefore B had a sort of moral obligation to help A. And so instead of severing your relationship with what you've sold, you have created a new relationship with the person who bought it and you can expect some kind of added income or assistance from that person. There's a 
loose but pretty significant parallel in wife sales. In, in wife sales, it seems pretty clear that many of the men, perhaps most who sold wives, felt that the buyers of their wives owed them something more beyond just the simple amount of money they had received. And so you have this pattern comes up again and again and again of the sellers after some period of time going to the buyers and saying, in effect, that's my wife you've got there. You owe me some more money. Otherwise, you're going to have trouble. And they would threaten to take the wife back. But often they would also threaten to go to court and accuse the buyer of having kidnapped and raped the wife. You know, kidnapping and rape were capital offenses in the Qing dynasty, whereas wife sale was a relatively minor offense. And so if a seller tried to do this, at very least, the buyer had a contract with the seller's handprint that had, he had affixed voluntarily before witnesses. And this was proof, in effect, of the seller's equal complicity. So if this thing should end up in court because uh, sellers would up the ante by filing charges against the buyers, accusing them of these heinous crimes as a way of trying to pressure them into paying, if this case did end up in court, then at very least the buyer could prove that um, he had not committed these terrible acts, so this had been a wife sale, and that the seller had acted voluntarily and was fully complicit in what had happened. Um, and so in that sense, it was a way of defending the buyer against the most extreme consequences of false accusation. Uh, it was a kind of insurance policy, you might say. Uh, and, and that's the way it proved. It, it functions as a kind of title deed. Um, so those are, those are really the two main functions of the, of the contract. A, it was to avoid going to court. And B, if it did end up in court, at least it would protect the seller, or rather the buyer, against uh, false accusation. Great. And you describe here as well something that will come up um, in, I, I imagine, just a few minutes. That's very much at the heart of the next part of the book, which is that, you know, even though this was illegal, sometimes magistrates would allow the second marriage to stand. Um, yes. And sort of how magistrates actually negotiated this whole process is another really, really interesting issue. And we'll get to that in a moment. Mm -hmm. Okay. So in this part of the book. Um, part two, wife selling. Not only do we learn about these contracts, as you've just um, told us, there are lots of other chapters that we are not going to have a chance to talk <laughs> about. But I just want to flag this for listeners because it's all really interesting and really important. There's a chapter, chapter five, um, that looks at the pricing of wife sales. So um, how much is a wife um, in terms of wages for an agricultural laborer, in terms of heads of cattle, coffins, numbers of pairs of shoes, how to choose children impact the pride uh, the bride price and so um, the presence of children actually comes up quite a lot in this part of the book and it's really really an interesting part of the story um, chapter six looks at negotiations between men in these sales and you've already talked a little bit about that um, and you talk here about some strategies for minimizing the risk um, of this of relationship and persuading the buyer there's also a whole chapter on um, wives who, for example, demanded to be sold. There are wives here who go on strike to get out of their marriages. Um, they, they refuse to get out of bed. They only get out of bed to get up and make dinner and burn the food on purpose and like make the dinner inedible and then go back to bed. There are wives who ran away to take refuge with their families. They sabotage the sales. Um, and you also talk about cases of wives sold against their will. Right. I mean, the, one of the basic points, just to be brief, is that oh, yeah. uh, I think it was very difficult for any of these practices to to work without the cooperation of the wife. That doesn't mean the wife was always enthusiastic necessarily, but without the wife's cooperation, it was very, very difficult to make any of this work. Uh, and I do have some cases of coercion, but again, I, I, those were under such special circumstances. I think they tend to be exceptions that prove the rule. Mm -hmm. 
and there are many cases where the wife wants out of her first marriage, um, and she's actually more interested in being sold than her husband is in selling her because after all she you know chances are the buyer will be better able to support her you, you know by definition is going to be better off if you can pay the bride price and so in most of these cases it seems the woman's uh, standard of living and security would improve when she moved from the first household to the next and since they often took their children with them um it was uh, advantageous for a woman who did not get along particularly well with her husband in the first place to be sold um Yet there were, there were also women who successfully resisted this, and I have examples of that as well. Right. And there are also lots of um, really interesting examples in the last chapter, in this part of the book, Chapter 8, of indirect sale that was facilitated by um, a wife's birth family, of widow remarriage, of the sale of a wife um, in the absence of her husband, and complications ensued when that happened sometimes. We <laughs> learn about those in the chapter. It's really fa- fascinating. And also cases of fraudulent wife sale, um, which is also really interesting. So there's a lot of material here in the second part of the book that's super fascinating that takes us into a lot of details, but not just details, also um, what I hope are obviously really, really interesting stories of individuals um, and families that were going through this. Okay, so this brings us to part three already, if you can believe it, and chapter nine. All right, so part three of the book shifts the focus from social practice, which is what we've been talking about um, up to now, and toward Qing laws regarding wife sales. Now, in chapter nine, there are two main points, and I just want to ask you to talk um, to talk a little bit about these. The first point is about the shift from the Ming to the Qing. Now, you, yes. make, you make a point here, right, that in the Ming dynasty, wife sales and marital prostitution were actually legally tolerated. Now, this changes in the Qing, which um, saw this kind of new environment of fundamentalism. And this is fundamentalism you describe here regarding sexual behavior, but also gender norms. So can you talk briefly about that? What's important for you that we understand about that shift from the Ming to Qing and the, its implications for the work that you're doing here? Right. Well, it has a couple of um, implications. I mean, one is just really practical. Uh, the, the main Qing innovation, um, well, there were two kinds of main innovations in the law. Um, one was that um, the so-called debased status categories that had been associated with legal sex work, legally tolerated sex work, those categories were eliminated. And so the, the uh, free commoner standard of sexual morality and also of criminal liability. Those were extended extended to include everybody. So that eliminated the kind of space for legally tolerated prostitution of various kinds. And most of that legally tolerated prostitution had been run on a household basis with the husband or father acting as the pimp and manager. So the the um, space for toleration of sex work was eliminated by the law. The other main innovation um, going along with sort of fundamentalism about female chastity was that um, almost all wife sales were criminalized. Under the Ming, only a, a small number of wife sales have been criminalized in a very specific scenario. Basically, if, if you take me as an example, if my wife is having an affair with another man and I find out about it, and instead of having them prosecuted, I simply agree to sell my wife to her lover in exchange for money, that kind of wife sale was illegal because it was seen as facilitating adultery, abetting adultery. That was really the only kind of wife sale that was criminalized in the, in the Ming dynasty, and that's a very unusual scenario. The Qing reinterpreted Ming law to extend the prohibition basically to cover almost all wife sales, including those in which 
the husband selling the wife was ill and poor, and his only motivations were poverty and need. Um, those had not been; those had been explicitly exempted from prohibition by the Ming Dynasty. So what this meant is that suddenly the vast majority of wife sales were against the law. Um, that's that was the result of the Qing reinterpretation of the law. I mean, among the practical results of these two changes by the Qing government were that um, suddenly you have prosecutions taking place, and you have this enormous archive of legal cases comes into existence, which someone like me can then go and read and find stories. Um, this kind of material simply would not exist if the Qing dynasty had not criminalized these things in the way it did. Um, and there's very scant evidence in the Ming for these practices. I think these practices went on in the Ming, but the fact is because they were not criminalized, um, there is almost no evidence about them. <laughs> and so from that limited point of view, we can be very grateful to the Qing government for its um, extremism and absolutism. <laughs> it's a good example of how the institutions of power uh, can create uh, new legal sources, <laughs> new forms of knowledge, if you want to be Foucauldian about it. Um, so that's a practical sense in which this is important. Um, but also, I think, um, in terms of understanding this Qing fundamentalism, I think that this, these are, you know, these changes in the law, criminalizing these practices, they're symptomatic of, one, how, how rigid the interpretation of female chastity as a priority became, but also related phenomenon where the Qing government in the 18th century engages in what I think of as a vain attempt to extend these norms down to include ordinary people and even the poorest of people and to hold them to the same standard that elites were being held to. And this was, I think, doomed to fail. Um, approaching female chassis in this way was, among other things, an effort to sort of shore up the family system against what was perceived as the threat of um, a growing number of single men outside the family system, these guangguan types. Um, but, you know, in the long run, I think the dynasty was really incapable of solving these fundamental demographic and social problems that it faced. Uh, these um, measures like banning prostitution, banning wife sales caused by poverty, these failed. I mean, they, they were impossible to enforce, ultimately. I mean, people could be arrested and punished, for sure. But um, if the goal was to stamp these things out, well, then it was a miserable failure. Yeah. And in fact, um, Chapter 10 looks at this tension um, that you describe and that you identify here between, on the one hand, um, what the book calls an absolutist principle that defined all wife sales as illicit sexual intercourse and persecuted them as all as the crime of buying, selling, and divorce. And also, at, on, at the same time, a widespread awareness among officials, and this is something that we'll talk about um, briefly next, that wife selling was the result of poverty, as you were just describing, and a kind of practical and compassionate approach that resulted from that awareness. Mm -hmm. So chapter 11, I think, really, really interestingly takes us into what you call a sort of flexible adjudication of routine mm -hmm. cases in these contexts, right, where local magistrates had to kind of make a decision, right? They, on the mm -hmm. one hand, um, do they hold fast to the laws coming down from on high that they were supposed to enforce, um, or on the yes. other hand, you know, were they a little bit more flexible in the way they adjudicated this? And um, as this chapter shows, um, and I think as you really compellingly uh, show here, flexible adjudication was the norm. So um, I think that's worth talking a little bit about. And you give sure. us um, a window into this in the case, for example, of the judgments of a particular uh, magistrate. But you talk about this more broadly, too. So um, would you talk about that a little bit for us? What do you think um, is most important about this phenomenon of flexible adjudication for what the book, uh, what the book is doing in this part of it? 
Well, there are a couple of aspects to this. Um, One is um, sort of more narrowly within the field of Chinese legal history. There has been a debate, pretty um, vehement debate uh, among different scholars about what is a a sort of deceptively simple question. Um, How did local magistrates judge cases when they were routine cases? Routine cases, in other words, that would not be set up through the chain of command for review. Um, So routine cases are usually referred to in the Qing as um, minor matters related to um, marriage, household, and land. Um, and some people have equated that category of cases to what in the Western tradition we would call civil law, uh, civil law cases, because the subject matter sort of overlaps with that. Um, but in the Qing system, there was no formal distinction between civil and criminal. Um, the real distinction was between routine cases that the magistrate was authorized to handle on his own, more or less, on the one hand, and then these major uh, criminal cases that had to be set up through the chain of command. So it was the xi shi versus the zhong da an jian. That's really the the significant division of cases in the Qing system. Um, And so there is this debate in the field of Chinese legal history about how these routine cases were judged. Um, Philip Huang um, argued very persuasively in his 1996 book that magistrates were judging really on the basis of implicit civil law principles that could be found in the Qing Code. Um, now, he doesn't say that they actually quoted the code or cited it or applied it in detail, but he believes that the guiding principles in deciding, deciding routine cases were very, very consistently based on what you can find in the Qing Code. Now, there are other scholars who disagree very strongly, um, especially Japanese scholars who believe that um, the Qing Code was just one factor uh, in judging these matters and and other things, including compassion, including local custom, including um, taking into account mitigating circumstances, the concrete circumstances of the people in the case. Those things were more important. And what magistrates sought to do was achieve a kind of balance, uh, a kind of balance and harmony as a result of their decisions. Um, and so that's one aspect of this, which I think is important. I come down on the side of the Japanese scholars, although I don't think they're completely right, but basically I agree with them that in my sample of cases, this sort of flexibility in which all of these factors are taken into account is a much better way of explaining the evidence than some notion that they're guided by the code. In fact, you can see many, many of these decisions which magistrates, first they explicitly denounce the wife sale as criminal and they will cite the code in their rescript, um, the law against mai xiu, mai xiu, he qiu ren qi, buying or selling a divorce in order to take in marriage with consent of the wife of another man. That was a crime. They will cite that statute, and then they will go on to say something like, well, but what can you do with these poor peasants who are so ignorant? And then they will take a pose of sort of compassion and noblesse oblige, and they will waive the penalties, or they will enforce only part of the uh, of the statute, or they will go so far as to allow the marriage created by the sale to stand, um, but in those cases, they might force the buyer to pay the seller a little extra money. <laughs> These are things that are completely, um, well, they cannot be understood in terms of the Qing Code, let's put it that way. So you have a variety of these solutions, in which is very clear the magistrates know the law, they are choosing not to enforce it. What they're doing is they're trying to come up with a solution which solves the immediate problems that brought this case to court. And so it's much more pragmatic and one might say compassionate. And one of the striking things about the evidence is that magistrates often would ask the woman what she wanted. Do you want to stay with the second husband or not? Do you want to go back to your natal family or not? And, the, and as far as I can tell, um, the, the decisions in these routine cases never went against the woman's wishes. I mean, I cannot find a case in which a woman, for example, was forced to stay with a second husband when she had said she didn't want to. 
Um, when the woman stated a second husband in that minority of cases, um, it was because they said they wanted to. So it's, it's quite striking. The magistrates are even taking into account the views of these women who, according to the orthodoxy and according to the Qing Code, these women themselves should be seen as adulteresses, right? Because they have acquiesced to an illegal transfer to another husband that results in an, in an illicit union. That was the way it was understood. I mean, from that standpoint, this was adultery, regardless of whether there was any adultery prior to the sale, because it resulted in an illicit union, and the parties had agreed to this. Therefore, uh, it counted as illicit sex. That was the orthodox standpoint. But the magistrates in charge of enforcing these matters clearly had a more complex view. And in the routine cases where they had, they had discretion, to handle these things more flexibly, they did so. And so that's, I think, one significant finding, at least for the field of Qing legal history, um, a fairly narrow field. Um, but I think that there are, there are other, perhaps, larger implications. Um, one is that you, know, you have this project by the high Qing judiciary, and not just the judiciary, but the court, through both propaganda in the chastity cult and through the criminal law, this project of promoting female chastity and enforcing a kind of uniform standard of sexual morality and gender roles across society. This project failed. And um, what you see is increasingly... um, it seems to me that the central court is unable to enforce its vision on the local level through the local courts. And if you look at a case like Weissail, where a widespread social practice driven by necessity directly contradicts what's in the formal law and what magistrates are charged with enforcing, uh, it makes the uh, imperial state look rather weak, you might say, um, in the face of these changes. Um, and also, it's just the tip of the iceberg in another sense. You have a huge number of kinds of transactions, practices, customary practices that are going on, which are prohibited uh, to one degree or another. And yet people have good reason to do these things. Uh, these practices solve problems that approved practices do not solve. And therefore, people have good reasons to, to do these things in defiance of the law, in defiance of the state. And there is this large and probably increasing sort of field of what you might call illicit customary practices um, which are going on, and they depend on community acceptance and community regulation rather than on the approval and uh, regulation by the formal system. And this gets back to one of your original points um, in introducing the book, um, that it seems to me that to understand Qing law fully, we need to take into account this much wider realm of what you might call illicit customary practices uh, that are going on and how they interact with the formal system. That's right. Thank you so much. And all of this, um, I think, is uh, pretty, probably pretty obvious to listeners that this is really um, going to help to transform how we talk and think about these issues. And also, we haven't had a chance to really talk about it, and we're coming to our conclusion. But it also transforms, uh, in a really meaningful way, how we talk and think about marriage in this context. What is it? Where is it? How is it? Um, and you very briefly mentioned, um, very early in our conversation, one of the binaries that this study helps um, I think to dissolve um, or to help mm-hmm. us think toward dissolving, which is the binary between marriage and trafficking, right? Traffic and women mm-hmm. in the chain. Yes. Um, as I, I, we probably shouldn't um, leave the conversation without at least talking very briefly about that. Did you want to say anything about that? Just to, sure. Yeah. Sure. Uh, we usually think of elite practices as normative and orthodox. Um, and yet even in the elite household, it's pretty obvious trafficking played a central role. So, uh, an elite wife would be would come from an elite background herself. She would enter her household with dowry and fanfare and great celebration. But the subordinate women of the inner quarters, the concubines and the maidservants, they would be bought on the market for money. They'd be brought in with little fanfare, um, and they would have a distinctly subordinate status. And so 
um, you see that uh, trafficking extended all the way across the economic scale from the poorest of households to the richest of households. Um, and within the within the elite household, you had a you know what Francis Cabrera I think would have characterized as a kind of class exploitation within the family, uh, where the elite wife her interests also would be served by this. Um, by polygyny and by this trafficking, uh, because she would be the one in charge of the inner quarters and the division of labor among the women would enable her to monopolize social and ritual motherhood while putting a certain amount of the biological burden onto these subordinate women who were also sexually available to her husband. And so within an elite household, you would have a division of labor, but also you would have the full range of the bride price dowry continuum where the elite wife comes in with a great dowry, but the other women are simply bought at the going rate for cash. If you look among the poor, um, it's not clear what percentage or how many, but I'm convinced that very many, perhaps most uh, ordinary people, especially the poorest of them, um, engaged in what was known, what Hill Gates would call bride price heavy marriage or simply marriage as sale in which um, a daughter would be sold to her groom's family um, for a bride price that would be money. And now that might be um, mitigated by some sort of dowry going with the woman, but very often this bride price was of only token material value, or rather the, the dowry was of only token material value. Um, it was not substantial because dowry was a status symbol. Dowry was something that distinguished um, elites and upper room mobile people from the poor. In an elite household, dowry distinguished the elite wife herself from the concubines and maid servants. So among the poor, you have basically the selling of daughters, which might be euphemized in various ways, but basically the selling of daughters into marriage for bride price. And then you have this whole range of practices that I talk about in my book, um, outright wife sale. You have widow remarriage, which uh, almost always took the form of wife sale, a marital separation um, took the form of either direct or indirect wife sale. Um, and so trafficking, it seems to me, was really an integral, inextricable part of the larger marriage system, the larger system for the exchange of women in the Qing and indeed up to 1949. So you know, one of the goals of my book is to highlight that. This is something that we've known sort of parts of, but I'm not sure it's really been put together as a coherent picture before. Uh, and so that's one of the one of the goals of the book. Great. So Matt, thank you so much. Now that we're kind of coming toward our conclusion, um, it's time to wrap up. I just want to mention um, very, very briefly um, that uh, as we come to our end, to the be- something that happens at the very beginning of the book, just to kind of flag this for listeners. You end the acknowledgments of the book by reflecting briefly on the relevance of the study, not just for how we understand Qing China, but also how we might understand China today. Um, right. so this is just, um, I, we don't, we don't have to really talk too much about that, but I just wanted to signal that because this is a book that's not just for people thinking through what happened in the Qing. This is also a book um, with potential contemporary relevance in terms of how we think about possible futures. Um, yes. So with that, uh, is there anything in particular, Matt, that we didn't have a chance to talk about, but that you'd like to mention for listeners and perhaps especially for listeners who haven't yet become readers? Well, I think the last point you made is something I'd like to underscore. Um, It seems to me that we're used to thinking about all the big changes, ruptures, discontinuities in modern Chinese history, and those certainly are worth paying attention to. But there are some very disturbing underlying continuities, uh, and this book, I think, highlights some of those. One is this this, uh, problem of the skewed sex ratio, the fact that um, discrimination against girls and women uh, continues to be a huge problem, and this leads to very skewed ratios between the sexes, not only at birth, but also um, by marriage age. So, um, 
you have skewed ratios at birth, but also these ratios worsen between ages one and four. And so clearly the way little girls are being treated is having uh, a lethal effect. That's a very disturbing continuity in modern Chinese history. Um, I don't think it can really be understood in the present without reference to this background, this historical background in the past. At the same time, since the... Um, Return to um, household farming, family farming, and private property, and, and so on. Uh, you have the um, return of a lot of kinds of marriage practices, which um, I think the Mao regime at least sought to eliminate, um, such as bride price heavy marriage. And one sign of this is that right now there's a, there is a kind of marriage fraud, which I talk about in my Qing sources, the so called uh, fang ying or fang goods, uh, flying the falcon, mm-hmm. is the way it might be translated into English, where. Um, a, uh, a married couple uh, will pose as a widow and her brother-in-law, and um, the brother-in-law will arrange to sell the widow in marriage to some gullible single man, and then um, after a couple of days, she will run away and then join her husband at the crossroads. They'll go off to the next village and do it again. You have very sophisticated versions of this going on in China right now, and what this says is that in, in at least some rural areas, um, bride price heavy marriage, buying a wife, in other words, has once again become very common, and perhaps even the default form of marriage for poor men. And this takes place, this kind of marriage fraud is taking place in in relatively poor villages where you have skewed sex ratios. There are men who are unable to marry any local woman for whatever reason, and so they are basically scammed out of whatever savings they have. And that's going on right now. And again, that you can find exactly the same practice in 18th century sources talked about with the same vocabulary. Uh, to me, that's quite striking, and I would never suggest that nothing has changed in China. But uh, it is interesting to see <laughs> how uh, there are these continuities as well. So speaking of continuities or lack thereof, now that the book is out um, and it's done, and congratulations on what I think is absolutely a landmark book um, for the future. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. What are you working on now? What's currently inspiring you? What are you um, thinking about and then researching? So I have been working on for some time a book about male same-sex relations and masculinity in the Qing dynasty. And again, this is an outgrowth of my original research, as is the book that I just finished. Um, this is a topic that I've addressed to some extent uh, in my first book and in some articles, mainly focusing on the legal side. Well, this will be very much a kind of social historical treatment. Um, and I have quite a few legal cases, almost 2,000, that are related to the prosecution of sodomy. Most of them are central cases, but I have some local as well. And that is a book that I have been working on sort of simultaneously with the one that just came out. It's one reason why the one that just came out took so long. But that's next on the agenda. I hope to finish it within three years or so. Knock on wood. Wow. Well, well, congratulations on this one. Best of luck with that one. Thanks for taking time away from that one to talk (laughs) with you about this one. And I hereby invite you um, to come back and talk about that one when it's done. Can't wait to read that one either. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. (laughs) Thanks so much, Matt. It really has been a pleasure to talk with you and congratulations on an awesome book. Thank you very much. I'm very grateful. You've been listening to new books in East Asian studies. Thanks so much for joining us at the podcast and we'll catch you next time.